Welcome to the serialized short story audiobook Blood is Red, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. Get the stories in Blood is Red for all ebook readers from scottsigler.com slash blood is red or from that same page as a full-length audiobook. You can also buy the Blood is Red ebook directly from the Kindle store, the Nook store, Apple's iBooks, and from Google Books. This book contains harsh language, adult situations, and lots and lots of violence. So if you're easily offended, fire up some Justin Bieber instead and enjoy. The Great Snipe Hunt by Scott Sigler The four students crossed the campus square like some soft drink commercial targeted at America's youth, or, perhaps, a group handpicked for a multicultural campaign. One with deep black skin, one with light brown, one with yellowish tan, and a tall one with a well-worn cowboy hat shading an alabaster white face. He also had perpetually sunburned red arms and a sunburned red neck a fact the other three enjoyed pointing out to him as often as possible. We got a name for this back in Texas, the tall one said, shaking his head as the quartet headed for the lecture hall. Back there, we'd call this a snipe hunt. Students dotted the grassy square like lazy termites on a rotted log. They played frisbee or hacky sack, lay out on beach towels, or sat cross-legged, books in their lap, enjoying the sun and a clear blue sky. Quit your bitching, Jake said the boy with a light brown skin. Don't back out now. You promised to help us. Besides, Shamiko and I will owe you one. Yeah, baby, said the girl with the flawless, smooth black skin. She flashed Jake a seductive smile. Who knows how I'll repay you? Jake looked away quickly, his face suddenly as red as his sunburned arms and neck. Oh, she like you, said Che, the group's fourth student. He spoke perfect English, except when he affected the sing-song talk of a Saigon prostitute. With his oriental skin and deeply slanted eyes, his native Brooklyn accent seemed more unbelievable than his over-the-top impressions. She like you long time! They loved to tease Jake. For all of his redneck behaviors, from his walk to his talk to his dress, he was a true southern gentleman. Even at 23, suggestive talk from a woman made him blush. While collegiate fashion fluctuated around him, Jake's field-hand style remained as unchanged as the day he'd set foot on campus four years earlier. He cleared his throat, eager to change his subject. <clears throat> I know I said this would be fun, but the more I think about it, the sillier it seems. I love to hunt, Carlos, but I ain't never been hunting for an imaginary critter. Not imaginary, Jake, my man, but undiscovered, Carlos said. Think about it like that and we'll be fine. They reached the bowl-shaped lecture hall, entered, and headed for the front row. Carlos Herrera led, as he always seemed to do, his thick black hair bouncing in time with each step. Shimiko Johnson followed, her tight, blonde-black hair bun making her the tallest except for the six-foot-two Jake Longdale, who took each step with an exaggerated bow-legged bounce. Che Yang followed them all, as perpetually in the back as Carlos was in the front, his I Was Born Here t-shirt blazing white under the lecture hall lights. They sat quietly, waiting for Dr. Paul Pillion to begin his lecture. The hall was barely a quarter full, for while Dr. Pillion's class was very popular, he only accepted a limited number each semester. Not the best and the brightest, as he often said, but rather the dedicated and the disciplined. Pillion looked up from his notes as Carlos and company slid into their seats. He smiled warmly at Carlos, then picked up a briefcase-sized black plastic case at the foot of the chalkboard. He approached the quartet. 
Mr. Herrera, Miss Johnson, Pillion said with a voice that revealed effortless intelligence, a voice deep-set with self-confidence and authority. Your two acquaintances are not in my class. Would you care to introduce me and tell me why they are here? They're ringers, Doc P, Carlos said. This is Jake Longdale, engineering student, and Che Yang, electronics technology student. Dr. Pillion nodded. He smiled, immediately absorbing the impact of Jake and Che's skill set. I should have known you'd be ahead of the game, Carlos, a place you and Shamiqua always seem to be. Then, quietly, so only the quartet could hear. And here's that equipment you asked for, Carlos. Very clever. Do be careful with it. I'd hate to regret my decision to let you take it on your expedition. Pillion turned back to the podium, leaving proud smiles on the faces of Carlos and Shamiqua. Hey, what's in the case? Jake said. Never mind, Carlos said. Just listen closely and take good notes. Dr. Pillion began his annual lecture, an unspoken tradition in the biology program. Perhaps the strangest final exam of any course on campus. Perhaps of any course in the country. Pay attention and take careful notes, class, because this is your final exam assignment. As many of you know, I don't believe in paper exams. They provide no relevance to the real world of biology. When you're waist-deep in a Congo swamp or laying in the Kansas dirt, fighting off sand fleas as you watch prairie dogs for weeks on end, there aren't a lot of blue books on hand. Moderate laughter came from the class. Many of you know what this assignment is. If you don't, you aren't very inquisitive, considering that I've given the same final exam for ten years running. Jake leaned over and elbowed Carlos. A decade worth of snipe hunting? Well, that's why this guy makes the big bucks, eh? Hush up, Jake. I've been waiting four years for this lecture. This is what he uses to determine who goes into the field with him over the summer, and he only takes two students. Dr. Pillion turned and wrote a sentence on the board. It said, Nature abhors a vacuum. Human cities, with their endless stretches of concrete and steel, would seem to be devoid of natural populations. After all, the only vegetation is a few hardy weeds, landscaping trees, seasonal flowers, and some sparse grasses. Without ample vegetation, normally the primary energy producer in almost every ecosystem, cities should be a veritable wasteland for anything but humans and human-supported animals such as pets. And yet, this is not the case. In New York City, there are over 250 documented naturalized species of insects, plants, and animals. In that same city, the pigeon population measures in the millions, rats in the tens of millions, and only God knows how many trillions of cockroaches and other insects. Uncountable feral cats living just as well as any wilderness animal. Crows, gulls, and other birds, even hawks. Bats, squirrels, and other mammals. The list goes on and on. So what powers this ecosystem? The primary energy source is garbage. As all of you who've lived in a city know, the garbage supply is constant. Insects and vermin eat the garbage and waste. Birds and bats eat the insects. Hawks and cats eat the birds and vermin, etc. In addition to food, we have numerous habitats in the form of buildings and other structures. There's always a place to get out of the rain or to hide from a winter's chill. Pillion stopped and smiled, then pointed at Jake. Mr. Longdale, what can you tell us about adaptive radiation? Jake's face flushed red. He looked left, then right, as if someone might help him. An uncomfortable silence filled the room. Uh, 
I really have no idea, sir. Pillion nodded. Good answer. A scientist's answer. Pillion turned again to address the entire class. People, when you don't know something, say you don't know, then figure it out. Shamiqua elbowed Jake's shoulder, leaned in to whisper. Dude, you're supposed to shut up in here. But he asked me a question. Carlos shushed them both as Pillion continued. So, we've got a rich environment that no animal could have evolved to fill, and yet this environment is full of a wide variety of creatures. What this population shows us is the power of adaptive radiation, the natural tendency of life forms to fill any available niche. You should all be familiar with this concept by now, considering that it is the subject of this very class, although I suspect that's news to some of you based on your scores from the last test. More laughter from the class. Dr. Pillion clicked his pointer against the chalkboard, accentuating each of his next four words with a sharp clack. Nature abhors a vacuum. The filling of available urban niches is a perfect example. It is almost a biological rule. If there is a niche available, an animal adapts to exploit that niche. And yet in the city environment, there is one niche that remains unfilled, that of the top carnivore, the top of the food pyramid. A blonde girl dressed in a thick flannel shirt raised her hand. But Professor, aren't humans the main predator? Namely exterminators going after rats and cockroaches and stuff like that? I discount exterminators killing rodents and insects. In any city, those pest populations are so large that the exterminator's efforts are largely insignificant on the population as a whole. So we have all these primary producers feeding on garbage, carnivores eating them, concentrating the food energy. But who eats the predators? Hawks and cats, to be sure, they are key predators. But what if there was something smarter? Something that could catch and eat anything from the smallest cockroach to the largest stray dog. How do you think people would react to that? An acne-faced boy with a shock of curly red hair spoke up. People would wipe it out. We've seen that time and time again in history. Humans can't tolerate predators in their midst, even if those predators pose no threat to humans. You're right, Mr. McCready, you're very right. Humans wouldn't allow such creatures, and yet, the niche still exists. If adaptive radiation is indeed a fact, then this can mean only one thing. That this creature is smart enough to avoid humans. The room erupted with animated moans of contempt, but both Carlos and Shamiqua leaned forward, locked onto every word. Pillion continued. Human civilization has existed in various forms for thousands of years. Egyptian cities with large populations, for example, have existed for more than five thousand years. But professor, the blonde girl said, five thousand years isn't enough time for notable physiological evolution. You're thinking in human terms, Miss Chadwick. For argument's sake, say humans reproduce one generation every twenty years. In the 5,000 years since the previously mentioned Egyptian cities, that's 250 generations. But what if we're dealing with something on the level of rodents, say something that could reproduce every four months? Now we're talking 15,000 generations, or the equivalent of 300,000 years in human reproductive terms. Now you see the opportunity for adaptive evolution in urban niches. The red-haired boy stood up, clearly agitated. 
Come on, doctor. Something that's been around for 5,000 years and humans have never seen it? That's ridiculous. Sit down, Mr. McCready. I'll continue the lecture, although your objections to my theory are duly noted. First of all, you assume that humans have never seen this creature. An accurate statement would be that there is no known recorded sightings of this creature. How many records do we have from cities as recent as a thousand years ago? Not very many. Even the excellent records of those aforementioned Egyptian cities leave a great many gaps in the daily life of the inhabitants. But the real reason humans haven't seen this creature? It's because the creature doesn't want us to see it. Now the blonde girl stood up. So you're saying my final exam is based on a creature lurking in our midst, a creature that remains unseen, not because it instinctively gets away quickly or can hide or whatever, but because it knows we'll kill it? Are you saying this creature makes rational decisions? Very good, Miss Chadwick. You've hit the nail right on the head. Groans and shouts filled the classroom. Dr. Pillion turned to the chalkboard and started scribbling a list of points. Che leaned in and whispered to Shamiqua. This class seems disrespectful. You said Doc P is a big expert and all that, but class is dissing him left and right. Is it always like this? Shamiqua nodded, although her eyes never left her notes. Doc P encourages dispute. He says scientists should question everything, especially the experts. If we don't challenge the status quo, there will never be new discoveries. Dr. Pillion finished the list and turned back to the class. You all seem very resistant to my theory, but why are you resistant? Because this thing hasn't been seen? Thousands of new species are discovered each year. Cryptozoology is the study of animals reported, but not scientifically verified. We find new species all the time. For example, the Buquang ox was discovered in the Vietnamese rainforest in 1992. It was so new scientists named it not only a new species, but had to give it a new genus as well. People have lived in Vietnam for tens of thousands of years, yet there was no known record of this creature. The red-haired boy practically vibrated with protest. But there's a huge difference between a massive rainforest and a city. And what would that difference be? Cities have many hiding places and a dense biological population. The biodiversity is limited, of course, but the only thing that's missing really is the trees. The point, students, is that trees or no trees, there are species out there waiting to be discovered. Which brings us to your final exam. Find this creature. You are to examine the environment in which this creature must live, then come up with a way to study it. Capture is optional. I will grade you based on your inventiveness combined with the application of theories we've covered in class. I will give you the following elements of my theory. First and foremost, this creature must possess considerable intelligence in order to realize that detection is a threat and to have actually avoided detection for thousands of years. These creatures would be so intelligent, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they exhibited limited tool use. The other main point to keep in mind is camouflage. This creature has avoided humans for millennia. It assuredly has some form of camouflage, perhaps even the color-shifting ability of a chameleon. Pillion smiled, held up his hands and shrugged as if to say, what could be easier? That's all there is to it. If you've studied hard in my class, you'll have all the knowledge you need to find this creature. If you haven't paid attention, I'm sure you'll discover the not-so-rare animal known as the D-. Your papers are due in four days. Good luck. The students, some grumbling, some buzzing with excitement, stood and filtered out of the lecture hall. Carlos turned to Jake and Shay. 
Now you see what we're dealing with. You guys still up for helping us out? <sighs> now I get why you wanted the infrared cameras and the motion sensors. But come on, isn't this a lot of trouble to go through for some imaginary critter? That's not the point, Shamiqua said. This assignment isn't just a final exam. This is what he used to determine who he takes into the field. This year he's searching for a new species of deer in the Congo. The people who go into the field with him usually get a free ride to any graduate school they want. An uncomfortable silence fell over the group. Since they'd met four years earlier, they'd spent the majority of their time together. Graduation was fast approaching. With it came graduate schools and separate paths. Jake broke the stillness. Come on, Shammy, you know you don't have to ask us again. We'll do it. Che and I will rig a setup that even your Doc Pillion couldn't touch. The four met early their freshman year. All attended the prestigious college courtesy of an academic scholarship reserved for financially challenged students. Financially challenged was a term Carlos translated simply as poorer than shit. The quartet possessed brilliant minds, scored obscenely high in the SAT, yet none of them could have afforded tuition, let alone books, room, and board. At their scholarship group orientation, which Shamiqua referred to as the Po-Niggas Convention, the four had hit it off. With little money for the normal college kid extracurricular activities, they often hung out together. When one had money, he or she shared it, but most of the time they were all flat-out broke. It was at one of these hangout sessions that Che dubbed the group the Penniless Four. As they grew ever closer in the following years, the name became a badge of belonging and acceptance. Together, they found pride in their backgrounds and the obstacles they all fought to surpass. Through the group, they beat the odds and they discovered themselves. Shamika was the only member with a vehicle, a beat-up VW van, once yellow and now mostly consumed by rust, commonly referred to as the hippie bus. It carried the four of them, a dozen black plastic cases filled with equipment, and their dirty laundry, to Carlos's mother's apartment in the city. While Jake and Shay were the ringers, they weren't the only card Carlos had up his sleeve. Each in the quartet had come from modest backgrounds, if not from flat-out poverty, but Carlos was perhaps the poorest of them all. He lived in a neighborhood that had more buildings vacant than occupied. Some collapsed, others on their way down in a neglect-fueled slow-motion battle against gravity. Yet despite the area's dilapidated condition, there was still a sizable human population that produced a sizable amount of garbage. Carlos knew all too well the lure of his neighborhood on rats and cockroaches. As a child, he'd suffered several rat bites despite his mother's best attempts to keep the apartment vermin-free. It didn't matter if she kept the place spotless, not when the neighbor next door or above or below lived like a scumbag. As for insects, well, Carlos figured he might be a shoo-in if Guinness ever started counting most cockroaches killed in a lifetime. His home sat dead center in an area of urban decay, the perfect headquarters for the great snipe hunt. The second floor apartment's window provided a clear view of a debris-filled vacant lot. Beyond the lot lay an abandoned building, even though that one was still standing, no one remembered it as anything other than a drug house that watched a chronological procession of controlled substance abuse. Opium, then heroin, then crack, then meth. The penniless four moved through the abandoned lot, setting up equipment and running wires. 
Piles of brick and masonry abounded, as did slabs of concrete that stood up at odd angles like some drunk's version of Stonehenge. Carlos's brother Hector was a high-ranking member of the Latin Bulls, a gang that ruled the area. Many inner-city kids ridiculed Carlos's attempt to pull himself out of poverty via an education, but not Hector. Hector, who had lost his right pinky and ring finger in a knife fight, was furiously proud of his younger brother, whom he called his little genius. Hector assured the quartet's protection for the weekend's research. Not that any of them worried much, with the exception of Jake. Shomikwa was born and bred in Harlem and knew her way around the streets. Che had been a mouthy Vietnamese kid in Brooklyn. They all knew when to talk shit, when to shut up, and when to run like hell. Jake, however, the biggest and meanest of them all, a man-boy that could outfight a long dick bull with a piece of rusty barbed wire wrapped around his balls, was terrified of the city. Jesus, Carlos, this shit makes me nervous, Jake said as he typed code into a laptop connected to a half-dozen instruments. We've been out here for three hours. The only white person I saw was a cop. He looked too smart to stop. Carlos unspooled wire, running it from the abandoned building a hundred yards to his apartment building. Would you stop your whining? My God, it's sad to know you're just another sucker for the racist stereotypes perpetrated by the white-controlled media. Fuck you, Carlos. Jake said without looking up from the computer. This place just ain't right. Inside the apartment, the sense of pride was an almost tangible thing. They adjusted the controls on two monitors, set up side by side on a thin but sturdy card table, patched here and there with black-rimmed duct tape, a poor man's furniture accessory supporting some 20 grand worth of the university's property. Jake and Chase sat in folding chairs, each in front of a monitor, adjusting the controls of the equipment they had borrowed. Shamiqua shook her head. That's not what I mean. Take this city we're in, for example. Millions of people. Even the worst run-down buildings have some homeless, or druggies, or dealers, or crackheads, or kids looking for a place to play. There's no such thing as a completely abandoned building. It doesn't matter how good the snipes are at avoiding humans. Sooner or later, someone's going to see them. It would probably be a myth like a Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster. You know, no evidence. Only questionable eyewitness accounts. But there's nothing like that. Che shrugged. Who cares? The fictitious to start with. No, she's right, Carlos said. We have to modify Doc P's theory to accommodate this observation. And I know how. The only thing that makes sense is this. If someone does see the snipes, the snipes get rid of that person before he or she can talk. They're smart enough to kill anyone who uncovers their secret. Shemiko laughed, then traded high fives with Carlos. That's why I love you, boy. We're going on safari with Doc P for sure. You my intellectual OG. Jake turned in his chair. What the hell is an OG? It means original gangsta, Hayseed, Chase said, then continued in an exaggerated impression of Jake's drawl. They's the main members of a gang. If y'all rednecks didn't spend so much time looking over y'all's shoulders when y'all come to the city, you might get some learning. They laughed, but Jake glowered. Y'all think this is funny, do you? I'll tell you what, I'll even the score. Next time the clan holds a rally back home, I'll bring you down so you can observe them. We'll see how safe you feel there. The analogy illustrated Jake's uneasiness. The other three wordlessly decided to back off if only for a little while.
they awoke to the smell of bacon frying with black pepper and Cajun seasoning. They lounged about the tiny kitchen table in various stages of dress, laughing with each other and entertaining Carlos's diminutive mother with college stories. She wore her maternal pride as if it were a priceless mink coat. While the project had them excited, they didn't immediately attend to the video monitors and the recordings. It was, after all, a snipe hunt, and all they were doing was providing a thorough and inventive means for documenting a creature that simply did not exist. They ate heartily, devouring a dozen eggs amongst them along with a loaf of toast and a huge plate of the peppered bacon. Che wandered away first, drifting to the monitors. Carlos sat next to his mother, reveling in the morning's fun, appreciating his family, his friends, and the good fortune that had delivered him from guns and gangs and violence. Shamiko wandered to the couch for some Saturday morning cartoons, while Jake refused to leave the table until Carlos's mother had finished her breakfast. The morning droned on with that warm, lazy quality of students' home just after completing the rigors of final exams. Nothing to do but bask in the luxury of nothing to do. That atmosphere evaporated when Shea rewound the recording and watched, disbelieving, for the third time. Uh, uh, guys, I think you better come take a look at this. The others noted his tone, simultaneously excited, concerned, and afraid. They gathered around the table. Jake slid into the other folding chair like a co-pilot responding to a captain's concern. This is the infrared recording, Chase said. He hit play. They watched the screen fill with patterns of blacks and blues and greens. Then, like a beacon of alarm, a blotch of red entered from the left. It bobbed around, moved in a circle, then seemed to climb the wall a few inches before disappearing. It's just a rat, Carlos said. Jake pointed the screen. His voice had taken on the same worried tone as Chase. Look at the scale. That thing was a foot tall if it was an inch. Last time I checked, rats didn't walk erect. Can you blow that up, Che? Che rewound the section, then punched at the keyboard. The blurry video picture zoomed in on the red splotch. At first, the splotch seemed to move on all fours. Then it rose up on two legs and walked toward the wall before climbing and disappearing, leaving only the blues, greens, and blacks. So it's a crazy rat, Carlos said. Rats stand on their hind legs all the time. They're smarter than shit and they know how to reach out for things. And if you've never seen a foot-long rat, then you need to spend some more time in mi barrio, essay. It's not just a single occurrence, Chase said. He reached to the second monitor and called up an image of familiar blues and blacks along with streaks of fuzzy red. I had this program to track motion so we could trace the patterns of any snipes. The brighter the red, the more traffic. The picture showed a wide shot of the concrete-strewn lot. Thick red streaks blazed definitive trails across the picture, moving amongst the dense rubble and buildings on either side. Jesus, Shamiqua said. It looks like a friggin' game trail with all that traffic. Che's fingertips traced the red lines on the screen. And the traffic is very defined, very regular. Notice there's no spots of faint red streaks, as one would expect with randomly moving rats or squirrels. That's what got me freaked out, Carlos. This regular dense movement is comparable to people walking on a path or... You know, even a sidewalk. Carlos glared at the others. You don't think we've actually found a fucking snipe, do you? No one answered him. You think rats are stupid? They follow the path of least resistance. They've got trails just like any other mammal. And that's all we're seeing. Rat trails. You've got all this time coded, don't you, Che? Of course. Good. Then call up the actual video for that infrared movement you showed us to start with, and you'll see it's just a big damn rat. Jake worked the controls of the second keyboard punching in the time code, 
calling up a digital video image of the lot. The picture showed recognizable rubble, rusted metal, and grass that had before been represented only by cool colors. Here it comes, Jake said. Right now. Something moved in from the left, but was hidden in the shadows. Jake rewound the image and zoomed in, enhancing the picture. He hit play. The movie rolled on. They watched it through the first time without speaking. Jake rewound it without prompting from the others, then superimposed the infrared image. They watched it again, in slow motion this time, just to be sure they hadn't suffered some group delusion. Camouflage, Shamiqua said, her voice a breathless whisper. Holy fucking shit. They watched the overlapped images a third time. The glowing red splotch moved as before, but the normal video showed that spot as a large piece of wrinkled newspaper. The splotch moved toward the wall, climbed a short ways, then disappeared, leaving the newspaper to fall gently to the ground. You have been listening to the Blood is Red serialized short story audiobook, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. This audiobook was produced by A. Kovacs and engineered by Ariok Morningstar. Theme music is the song Greed by Separation of Sanity. For more information on the author or to hear his free weekly fiction podcast, go to scottsigler.com. Five minutes. A transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.